Looking to stand out from the pack at your first job? When you earn a master's in management from Georgetown, you'll gain the skills employers value most, elevating your career prospects for years to come. Get started at choosegeorgetown.com slash MIM. Welcome to the Smart Driving Cars podcast. I'm Fred Fishkin. Once again, I'm joined by the Faculty Chair of Autonomous Vehicle Engineering at Princeton University, Alan Kornhauser. And a bit later, I'll have another guest, Professor Kara Cockleman from the University of Texas at Austin. Alan, great to chat with you again. Uh, Nice to be here today. Well, news out right now, GM and Cruise Automation have announced the production design for a mass production self-driving car that if I'm reading it right, they say we'll be ready to go as soon as the software is ready. What's your take on this? Well, I think that this is really a uh, major announcement, and I think uh, shows enormous progress uh, in integrating crews into General Motors. Um, I guess it at some point, I thought maybe um, uh, they w- I might have commented they might not make this much progress, but this is really a major piece uh, because they've been dealing with the practicality of trying to create a vehicle uh, that can actually be uh, driverless. I know the headlines talk about self-driving, but sort of in the dichotomies that I talk about, safe, self, and driverless, their interest is really to do the driverless piece. And uh, that's what is so important with this because uh, what a driverless entity is going to require, as is being pointed out, uh, is that you don't have the ability to uh, have a fallback position on having a human take over. So the uh, amount of redundancies that you need both in the sensor systems and in the uh, control and execution systems uh, need to be in the vehicle. And that has to – they can't really be retrofitted. Uh, They have to be part of the fundamental original design and in some sense the original manufacturer. Uh, manufacturing process. So uh, especially with respect to uh, the controllers and the actuators uh, and all the wiring and so on that is needed to do all that, uh, that really needs to be designed in from the beginning, uh, not an afterthought. And it seems as if uh, what uh, Cruise and General Motors have have done is, is taken their uh, best of their manufacturing facilities and uh, and basically structured them to begin to produce vehicles that have this amount of redundancy. So bottom line, does it move what your estimate might be of the of the of the time when we're actually going to be seeing these in mass production and in the hands of consumers? Well, I think it certainly uh, moves the needle in terms of of, uh, them being uh, available in in a production basis. Uh, It moves it it way up uh, because this was a a necessary step in the process. Um, What they are careful to mention is that uh, the first uh, uh, elements of this generation uh, that they intend to deploy in San Francisco – 
uh, will have drivers in them, so they really won't be operated driverlessly. But in a sense, they'll be operated in, uh, in, as they get their their software uh, to really work in in a situation in which there are no interventions with the human. And so, at some point, I guess as I've also written, uh, uh, they'll be confident enough in the software and in the uh, redundancy in the hardware to basically. Um, uh, ease the uh, human out of the vehicle and all of a sudden they might be operating um, uh, without anybody in them and um, and so that will really be the um, the introduction of the driverless world and since they're doing it in California where California has prepared itself for doing this kind of testing uh, of um, of driverless vehicles um, that's the place will will occur uh, when that transition takes place, um, uh, it's hard to tell. I'm sure it will only take place once uh, GM and crews are are essentially uh, perfectly confident uh, that no incidents uh, will result. Uh, they may still have some supervisory uh, redundant uh, monitoring remotely on these things uh, for a while. They haven't uh, suggested that, but um, they I would imagine that that's part of their plan, but I think it, it really moves the ball along uh, uh, substantially uh, towards this uh, driverless world. And uh, another part of the equation that they talk about, and that you know we've we've talked about before, and and they're about to again, is the regulatory environment. And since our last podcast, the House, with bipartisan support, has passed the Self Drive Act. Uh, you say it's likely to be the best thing Congress will do this year. Well, <laughs> yes, not a high bar, as I also mentioned. But, uh, uh, yes, it's nice to see uh, bipartisan support in the House for this. And, um, and of course, uh, what it's suggesting and what it's allowing is for uh, an, an increase in the number of vehicles that, that at least on a nationwide basis, would be permitted out there for the testing uh, that don't uh, meet uh, the requirements of the current uh, uh, car that is sold in the uh, in in a showroom. So uh, this uh, and in some sense, uh, uh, as I've also suggested, um, certainly the driverless piece of this is a is really a brand new mode and requires really a, uh, an oversight that is. That is unique to it simply because of the of what it affords in mobility and and in terms of its design. So uh, it's a very positive step forward. Now, there's a Senate bill too, and there seems to be some reluctance uh, to allow the automation in large commercial vehicles, in other words, trucks. And it seems perhaps one of the biggest concern might be the loss of jobs. Uh, yes, and and I think that uh, labor unions uh, are, I guess, uh, um, not uh, seeing the, the the real value of the legislation. In a sense, it is going to be 
a while, if not uh, at least a while, from the um, uh, from the cruise announcement for driverless cars to be uh, uh, on the road. It's going to be a very long while before driverless uh, trucks, especially um, uh, driverless Class 8 uh, large um, uh, um, over-the-road vehicles to be driverless. Um, one, uh, the economic forces to make them driverless uh, are not really there. You have an extor- extremely valuable payload uh, behind you in the truck, and um, and in some sense you can afford uh, to have a driver or a caretaker of that uh, that particular commodity as it's being transported. And secondly, uh, it's it's again going to be a long while before uh, one uh, one sees uh, driverless trucks out there, uh, simply because um, the driver can perform all sorts of other uh, support functions to that commodity movement, and it's really not in the in the best interest of of the of the trucking company or the the owner of the goods that are being um, uh, transported uh, to remove that driver. What it is in the interest, uh, what the technology does do is provide a much uh, more hospitable environment for the truck driver. Truck driving is a very, very difficult job. You have to sit there and pay attention uh, for, you know, a 10 hour stretch. And if you don't, you die. And I mean, that, that is just an enormous pressure put on those poor folks that, that have that job. And what this technology can do is really substantially improve um, uh, the quality of the work life and, and, and of the workplace of the driver. And I think um, uh, organized labor should be supporting the, the creation of an improved workplace uh, for their members. And not only in terms of, of comfort and convenience and the ease of, of, of doing one's job, but in the fundamental safety. Um, uh, driving and truck driving is one of the most dangerous occupations, and uh, what this technology can do is uh, substantially change that. So where I think organized labor should be is in support of the technology. It's not going to take away jobs for a very long time. And in fact, it's going to make over the road uh, uh, commerce even even more attractive and create jobs. And so I think that they should really rethink their opposition to this legislation. Well, sort of related to that, you know, there there's some new and you've talked about it in, in your latest newsletter. There are some new stats out from the National Safety Council indicating that motor vehicle deaths in the first half of this year declined about 1% from a year earlier. But that's still 8% higher than, than they were in 2015. You know, when I, when I look at that, I wonder what's going on. Isn't all this new tech with the lane departure warnings and the automatic collision avoidance, isn't all that having an impact? Not yet, because not enough people are buying them, or they don't occur. Uh, 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 they're not part of the vehicles that people are buying. And if one looks at trucks, uh, they're not. They're hardly part of any truck. So, in a sense, what we need to do is uh, is really, uh, if, if there's been such a small market penetration to date, 
and some of the systems maybe haven't worked quite as well as the newest systems coming out there, it's going to take a while to make the penetration and to have that be uh, sub uh, become uh, a substantial part of, uh, of the vehicles that are out there. Uh, but what we need to do is continue to promote uh, this technology uh, because if it doesn't get adopted, then we'll never gain the benefit of it. So, uh, but uh, it's still uh, it's still too early, and probably the one or two percent drop is probably due to the introduction of the of the first of these vehicles, and maybe the it, it, without them, it would have increased. So um, uh, the the the, um, um, the the verdict's not in yet as to whether or not there hasn't been any um, uh, effect so far. There, we we may be seeing the beginning of that effect. And on the bright uh, side, we're we're seeing the technology in in cars that really are are not really the, just the luxury models. We're seeing them in really consumer priced models, right? Absolutely, and and we even see Ford advertising uh, some of these things in a Ford F-150. So uh, there is a reason to be optimistic, uh, but there needs to be uh, there needs to be a, an even stronger push uh, to get a, a more rapid adoption, so that more and more people can take advantage of this. And so the uh, the the information um, uh, needs to be out there. The salesmen need to be selling it in the showrooms, and the car man and manufacturers need to be uh, promoting it. Uh, it it's very good news that they're beginning to do this, but they are still at the very beginning. Finally, and a little bit off topic, uh, how cool was it that, that Tesla, with an over-the-air update, was able to extend the driving range for people who were fleeing from Hurricane Irma? Uh, I, I think it's uh, that's the benefit of over-the-air update. So uh, let's make sure that the cybersecurity is, is solid behind it and, and so on. But, but it is really wonderful. Again, another piece of good news that, that in fact, uh, the technology that, uh, that is being put into these vehicles uh, is really uh, providing uh, some real value. Uh, they needed some range extension. Um, there was uh, uh, there was a difficulty in obtaining uh, gasoline for gasoline-powered cars. Uh, can you imagine if there would have been uh, a, a substantial penetration of electrified uh, electric-powered cars? Uh, how many um, charging stations we would have needed along the evacuation routes and so on? So that's another thing that we're going to have to start thinking seriously about the making sure that we have that but um yes that is um that is uh, again we're nothing but good news this time <laughs> well on that note thank you alan you're welcome joining me now is dr kara Kockelman, professor of transportation engineering at the university of texas at austin thanks for being here kara it's a pleasure and one of the things i talked to alan about was a news story out that says GM and Cruise Automation have announced the production design for a mass production self-driving car that they're saying will be ready to go when the software essentially is ready and when the regulatory environment is ready. What's your take on that? Is that a big step? 
Yeah, I think that's terrific. We want to see as many manufacturers ready to go with the sensors on these long-lived capital investments as early as possible. And so having really just Tesla out there and, of course, Mercedes, Volvo, and some others in certain test cases pursuing it is, is not enough. We need to see a big U.S. auto manufacturer do it as well. So this is a, a pretty good step forward. One of the things you've been studying and writing about is how willing we are here in the United States to, to buy cars that have a variety of new capabilities, including the ability to drive themselves. Right. And there's a wide variety of willingness to pay for those things. Well, the average price you found that people are willing to pay for full automation, I don't know how you came up with this, but I guess its you just asked people for a number. The average was $3,252, but that is for a car that has the human driving option. If we don't have that option, I can see this listed on the sheet now when you go to buy a car, the different options. If you don't have that option, the price drops to $2,783 of what people are willing to pay. So what does that tell us? Well, people want choices. They don't want to relinquish complete control. In fact, when we ask them if they did have such a vehicle in their possession, one that had dual mode, what percentage of their distance would be self-driven versus human-driven, the majority is human-driven. So they want to be able to take control if they feel that the vehicle is maybe not driving the way they'd like to, maybe not aggressively enough, for example, or maybe seems to be kind of a dangerous situation and they don't feel there's enough good data on those situations for them to relinquish control. And, of course, they also want to keep in practice because they will change vehicles from time to time, maybe while they're on vacation or maybe their vehicle will be in the shop and they need to be able to still drive a conventional vehicle well. And that's a skill you need to keep testing yourself on. You can't give it up for years at a time and drive the same way when you get into a new vehicle. So for the foreseeable future, uh, the thinking is that we're going to want cars that we can drive. Yes, definitely. There's not enough data or demonstration for people to feel comfortable completely giving up that task. Now, what are your thoughts about the driving forces, forgive the pun, behind vehicle automation? What's pushing this ahead? Well, I think the manufacturers know that the time savings effectively for the drivers was be wonderful. I mean, that's a massive value right there for our economy because those people can be productive in other ways, maybe catching up on sleep, maybe catching up on emails, conversations with other passengers or people via phone. So much easier to be a passenger than to be a driver, especially in congested conditions. The other thing that's pushing this too, though, is manufacturers, insurance companies, and travelers know that a smart vehicle, well-designed vehicle, can avoid a lot of crashes. And that brings a lot of pain and suffering to a lot of people. It's still pretty rare in this country that you crash, but the costs involved are, are very serious. And that's almost as competitive as the time savings advantage. Is there one that's more important than the other between the two, the, the safety over the time savings or vice versa? <laughs> To the consumer, most consumers are going to go with the time savings because crashes are rare events, so they really don't think about them much. Only if you've had a very direct experience does that come to mind, and people tend to forget quickly, but they experience congestion every day and the hassles of driving and parking, too. Many people would love to get rid of that hassle, but 
I don't recommend that we let privately owned self-driving vehicles start driving around empty on our streets in places where it's difficult to park or expensive to park because those are already very congested locations. I don't know if this news from GM and, and Cruise changes things at, at all, but what what's your estimate of when we'll really be seeing these kinds of vehicles transporting masses of people around? Well, I get that question a lot, and it depends very much on context. So in Silicon Valley and San Francisco, you may see a lot of the early demonstrations and some particular corridors and origin destination pairs served very well early on. And in the next five years, you may see pretty strong demonstrations of like an airport to downtown hotel situation going on, but only for those travelers. So most of the United States is not going to see a lot of this. Of course, with the cruise vehicles and the Teslas getting their software updated and hopefully having the sensors on board, usually LiDAR is needed. And of course, the Teslas are not driving with that. They don't have that. That's an expensive option to add onto a vehicle. But hopefully, you know, you'll see a lot of vehicles be able to switch longer term, it, it, but it really depends on the quality of those sensors and that code. What are some of the other questions that you've been asking people about this technology? Oh, we asked them, like I mentioned, how often they would drive in self-driving mode if they had both options on the vehicle, how often they will choose to use a shared autonomous vehicle, like a self-driving lift vehicle at different prices. We give them different settings and maybe different waiting durations, you know, a five minute versus a 10 minute wait for that vehicle. We ask them whether they'll be ready to share a ride with a stranger when there's no third party, no driver in that car, and that will bring down the fare that they pay for that shared vehicle. We ask them whether their home location choices and their trip destination choices will be affected. This is really important for long distance trip making, as you can imagine. So some big shifts potentially in store. Now, in looking at the potential for those shared fleets of autonomous electric vehicles, uh, what, what are you seeing when, when it comes to the public attitudes? I mean, there, there's been carpooling around for a long time. Some people love it. Some people hate it. We're talking about a kind of a different animal here. Right. Well, car sharing is not carpooling. I think everybody's pretty comfortable with having somebody chauffeur them around. So if it's your own private taxi or, you know, something nicer than a taxi, let's say, if it's a special business meeting or you're taking someone out for a special night on the town, you know, you can order up a nicer interior vehicle and then you don't have to deal with parking. And if you, you know, want to imbibe alcoholic beverages and still be able to go home safely, everybody I think is very comfortable with that. The question is whether they're willing to let go of personally owned vehicles that are currently in their driveway or their garage. And letting go of one of those. I think most households would be very comfortable letting go of one and maybe both or all vehicles that that household owns. They do need to experience those fleets, though, and see what the prices tend to be and what the response times tend to be. Now, car makers have uh, spent a lot of time and money uh, convincing us to fall in love with driving for many, many, many years. Uh, how willing do you think we'll be, and you're just talking about it, to, how willing will we be to, the, to let go of the wheel? 
Oh, I think most of us will let go very quickly once we get used to getting our email done and getting some shut-eye en route. That's a really easy situation to fall in love with and not want to relinquish. So this will be a time-saving measure. Safety is going to be very secondary to the consumer. So the idea of being able to check the email and text <clears throat> the way a lot of people do now, <laughs> but more safely, is, is a big thing. Absolutely. Um, you've you've looked also at how much more long distance traveling might result from this technology. What what did you find? Well, we think the airlines should probably be kind of worried. Uh, we do anticipate a lot more of our long distance trips taking place on the roadway, and what that would add in terms of vehicle miles traveled across the nation might be 15% more driving. What people, and when I say driving, it's self-driving. So the vehicle is still driving. It doesn't have to have a human driver in that seat. But uh, we also see, you know, people not traveling quite as far. So instead of flying across the country, they choose a long-distance destination that's maybe one state away or two state away, and they take the self-driving vehicle on that trip. And so that, that cuts into airline activity quite a bit, and it adds a fair amount of driving to a lot of our rural two-lane highways. So that's a bit of a concern. Well, we also see, of course, more people getting on the road. So a lot of people avoid driving because they have a disability or they're fearful at night. And then some people are too young or they're taking special medications that prohibit them from having a license. So adding that to the traffic as well is, is very serious. So we're talking about a potentially 30% increase in travel on our roadways. Really opening things up, as, as you alluded to, to a lot of people who really aren't able to drive now or maybe in the future wouldn't be able to drive. Right. And they are some of the biggest proponents and fans of what Google and Waymo are doing. And they are definitely ready to stand in line and get those vehicles. But I think the transportation network companies like Lyft and Uber are going to be able to outbid them because those companies are going to be able to use those vehicles eight hours a day. And I know the vehicles probably won't last as long. They won't last 15 years like a typical household-owned vehicle does when you're driving it that often. But those uh, those operators are going to be first in line. And, of course, these other people can, you know, go ahead and rent, you know, a trip at a time from those operators, and that's terrific. You've also studied some of the benefits in bus fleets and trucking. Right. Well, those are obvious applications. Those are very big, expensive vehicles. So adding, you know, a fifty thousand or even a eighty thousand dollar self-driving technology to those vehicles on the assembly line or even after market is very worth considering. And it seems to almost be a no-brainer with the bus turnover that we've looked at, but it really depends on how much people are willing to sell those for. So it's really going to depend on supply. And of course, those prices will come down at about 5% a year or maybe 10% a year, which will be great long term. We should expect every bus to have these technologies and every truck. There's been some movement in Washington. How optimistic are you about the regulatory environment for this technology? Well, I think they are 
aware of past issues and fortunately we're able to benefit from some of the automation in the skies on airplanes. It's a much simpler task, but there were some mistakes made, I think, in sharing of code and firewalls between different parts of the program. And so vehicles are benefiting from that and, and so are regulators knowing, you know, what went wrong and what can go better this time and not wanting to stifle innovation. So uh, a lot of the manufacturers have been conveying the concerns to the policymakers at the state and at the national level, and that's definitely helping. And we've got a lot of, I guess, institutions like the Society of Automotive Engineers working across countries. And so I'm pretty hopeful there, but it is a very difficult you know, place to be, and I don't envy those regulators. Well, on that note, that's it for this edition of the Smart Driving Cars podcast. Find us at smartdrivingcar.com and look for my tech reports at textination.com. Thanks for listening. The all-new Toyota RAV4 asks, what if? What if your ride was refined and rugged at the same time? Introducing a car that's got style and substance to spare. The all-new RAV4 Limited, featuring a sophisticated, muscular new exterior and available options like a premium JBL audio system and panoramic roof. The all-new RAV4 Limited. Toyota, let's go places. JBL and Clarifier, registered trademarks of Harman International Industries Incorporated.